just thank you that you have called us out of darkness, Lord, and into your marvelous light. So as children of light, Lord, as we open up your word tonight, we just pray once more that you would teach us and instruct us, that you would guide us through preparing us for every good week, uh, work in this coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Should you turn and greet your neighbor? Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. Last time we were in Isaiah, a couple of weeks ago, we left off at verse 10, so we'll pick back up there. And just a little bit of a survey before we get started. How many people here have a smartphone? Just a few? Okay, a few people. The reason I'm asking is, if you use Uversion, it's a Bible app. There's something called events that can be set up on it, and so I'm going to start setting what's called an event, and an event will be every one of our services. And what you do is you click on the U-verse, the, the and you click on the event, and it will download all of the cross-references that I use in Scripture. It'll download our bulletin, um, or at least a link to the bulletin, even a link for giving. Um, I'll probably end up putting the points that show up here on the board up there so you can do it all, you can see them all on your smartphone and also you can type in notes as well. So you can do that on a smartphone, a laptop or an iPad. Also I was going to try something as well. I was going to introduce it next week but I'll just do it here today. Um, if anybody has any questions during the service, you can text them to me and after service I'll answer them. Um, you know, perfectly related to the study, but if you have something else, that would be cool as well. Um, in order to text me, you'll need my phone number. My phone number for my cell number is in the bulletin. There's a little, if you open up the bulletin on the left-hand side under the This Week events, all the way on the bottom, it's kind of like our business card, has our address, phone numbers. The crisis line that is there, that's my cell phone number. If you don't have a bulletin with you, it's 909 702-7805 so if you have a question text me and we'll just see how it works um, I'll do it on Sunday morning Sunday morning the whole place is about full so I don't know if I'll get to all of them if there's a lot but just thought something new and give it a shot see how it works uh, feel free to text me throughout the study I'll put this on silent for now and then uh, at the end, I'll check it out. If there's something there, good. If there's not, then we'll just go ahead and dismiss. So as I said, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. We'll pick up at verse 10, and we're going to go all the way through to the end of 52. So starting in chapter 50 at verse 10, we have what is called the third servant poem. Now, we were introduced to the servant earlier that the Lord speaks of, couple times it's referred to uh, Israel, but the servant in all in all is Messiah. And so he's leading up to, well, he's going to keep going through even, but Isaiah 53 that describes the, the, the Messiah's ministry almost in detail, even 700 years before it, it, it came to pass. But what we need to be looking at is in this message to the servant or through the servant as well, is how it relates to our day. And so what Isaiah was doing, he was speaking of the coming Messiah that would happen some 700 years after his life, 
when Jesus Christ came, and so we can see elements of Messiah's ministry back then, but even through to us today. The message contained in this poem, it's in a Hebrew form of a poem, so it won't look very poetic to us, but the message contained in this poem are directed to those who are in Babylonian captivity and those left behind in Jerusalem. Once again, we see God offering hope to people who are in darkness, but this is before the fact. Israel is not in Babylonian captivity at the time of Isaiah's writing, but Isaiah has been speaking of, matter of fact, Assyria is upon the scene. Babylon has yet to rise up to national or worldwide prominence at this time, but he's speaking, he's telling them, God always speaks to us that way. He tells us what he is going to do before he does it. And so they have the word of God through the prophet of God, so that when Israel, now it's important, we saw this when we studied Ezekiel, it's, it's essential even that God tell what he's going to do before he's going to do because there's great promises given to nation Israel. And you all of a sudden get led into Babylonian captivity and you're wondering, what happened? What happened to the promises of God? Was Babylon greater than God that they were able to thwart all that God had said? And, and is this the end of the line? Well, if they were students of the word through the prophet Isaiah, and then even as the time approached, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they would know that God has a plan in all of this. Really, that captivity was for the purpose of correction, that Israel would once again know that the God who is, is truly God, because again, they were going towards false gods. They were leaving their God who had delivered them in so many times in the past, and were going after those gods who weren't really gods. And so God desiring to get their attention brings them into captivity. But we can look back and we know and we understand that God did get their attention, although they waned still, but Messiah did come and God has fulfilled his promises. But even in our lives, there's future promises still to be fulfilled in end time events. We have the rapture of the church. We have the time of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, millennial age, the great white throne judgment and then we have the new heaven and the new earth and so we look back and we see the fulfillment of God's promises even when worldwide events didn't really dictate that they were going to come to pass but they did and so I can have an assurance of the promises that God has set before me and so a parallel that we would have is the hope that we have to offer to those who will be going through the tribulation now again ours is a little bit different Jesus was, or God was prophesying the coming Messiah and the events leading up to that. We have been promised and given the second coming of Messiah and the events that are going to be leading up to that. But we know before the time of tribulation, there's going to be the rapture of the church. And so we're not going to be here, just like Isaiah. He wasn't going to be there when the captivity happened. But they will be, and so will the Lord. And so the idea is the hope, offering of the hope to the future generations. Now we have the same opportunity, because as we go out and preach the gospel, now we're looking at the worldwide events that are going on today. Even in our own country, chaos reigns, it seems. And as we see that happening, we're reminded of the birth pangs that Jesus said were going to come leading up to end-time events. Israel has been reestablished. 
seems as if God is doing a work, seems like society is so much more godless than it has ever been, and the Lord spoke of these things, he's prophesied these things so that when the time came, we would know and we would be looking for the events that are going to occur. And so today, it seems very imminent that the rapture could happen, could be at the very door. Is it? I don't know. No man knows, but it seems to be. And so we need to step up our ministry. And so we preach the gospel. Now, if the rapture happens in our lifetime, once again, you very well could be sharing the gospel with somebody who's going to be going through that time of tribulation. We have the church age. There's the rapture of the church as God brings the church, every born-again believer, unto himself. There's the seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus Christ is going to come back in the second coming. So there's the necessity to understand once again what that tribulation is. The time of tribulation, that seven years of tribulation, is not punishment. Don't get it confused with punishment. It's not going to be enjoyable to be there, but tribulation literally means a squeezing. And it's God getting the attention of those who would be saved. It's because of his grace and his mercy that he allows this to happen. And so everybody who is left behind after the rapture of the church, they're all unbelievers. And so for a period of time, there's not going to be one born-again believer here on the earth. But because you shared the gospel, if it happens in our lifetime, people are going to realize what they said, what those Jesus freaks said, it's true. It came to pass, and it would drive them to the Word of God. Or maybe, I mean, just think of the media that is out there. We take our teachings, and we have CDs. So the CDs are floating out there somewhere. You know, people listen to them and whatever they do with them. So we have CDs of our team. Now, this is just us. We, we put out videos. We have videos that we record a video, and we have DVDs, and not only the DVDs, but also we post it up on YouTube. And then the audio of our study we post. And then so it's, it's just going out in so many different ways and so many different directions. We have a radio show on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock on KTI. And so we're putting the word out. So many other churches putting the word out even to a greater degree. But the word is going to be out there. So when the church is taken, God's word still goes. God's word is still going out. And so people are going to be saved. And so you have this tribulation so that man would turn from his wicked ways and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is a common theme that you see throughout the tribulation? These great cataclysmic events are going on and it says, and they did not repent. It's not speaking about everybody because people are going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during the time of tribulation. But there are those who realize that these things are happening and they're happening by the hand of God. How do we know that? Because they're cursing God to his face. They're blaspheming God. And they could have repented. They could have, now they still would have been going through that definitely this hard time, but they could have got, they could have repented and gotten right with God and they could have become born again even during that time. And so can you imagine yourself in the position of the prophet Isaiah, realizing all of these difficult things are going to be happening, telling people so they're prepared when they do come, well, it's our ministry as well, telling people the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, so when that time of tribulation comes, these people are prepared. And so first we have the message that we'll be looking at in chapter 51. This message is in the form of four ex exhortations 
to the captives, to those people who've been taken captive. So really the first part of chapter 51 is written to those people who are in Babylonian captivity, or at least will be in Babylonian captivity for the future. Application for our day, again, making it relatable to those who are going to be going through the tribulation. So the first exhortation to the captives is, when you find yourself in a dark place, seek God's light. Again, verses 10 and 11, this is in chapter 50. He says, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Darkness. What is darkness? Darkness is the place. Well, we have the one picture of being sin, but look in our lives. Look in our lives. Darkness, place where we're confronted by our fears. It's a place where we can be alone with our thoughts and faced with the unknown. There's a natural fear of the darkness. There's a natural fear. I mean, you ever wake up in the middle of the night and be afraid, and what am I afraid of? I know I was like that as a kid, but it can be like that as an adult as well. And so there's that natural uncomfortableness and darkness. Well, Judah has been led to the darkness of Babylon, but they're encouraged during that time to trust in God. Now, again, we know that black Babylon is a place of correction, change, and realization where they, where they are at with the Lord. We saw in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah that Israel was to be released from this place of darkness, although not all would go. And it bears out what we're told in the New Testament in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Because see, if there's at that time, there can be that great changeover. Instead of that discomfort, you can even find a place of comfort in the darkness. Now for the believer today, this perceived darkness that comes along that we need to be so, well, that we can find ourselves in when we do walk away from the Lord is that place that we have to find dependency upon God. And there's a big contrast here between verses 10 and 11. God has allowed him to go into Babylon, Babylonian captivity. We experience from time to time a darkness because we're separated from God. Not separated from his salvation, but our sins have caused us to become separated from God. And we've all felt that at a time because we're not obedient to the Lord. We felt that sensation of separation. Well, verse 10 says, who among you fears the Lord? Now, again, he's speaking to people in captivity. Who obeys the voice of a servant who walks in darkness and has no light? So if you find yourself in that position, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Remember the name of the Lord? The name of the Lord is the nature and the essence of God. It's spoken of back in Exodus chapter 34. And God's name, when he proclaimed his name to Moses, he's long-suffering, he's gracious, he's loving, but also he does not neglect judgment. And so it's during those times, those times when you feel separated from God, you're not going to be able to work your way out of it. Your dependency is upon the Lord. And so what's the first way to approach God during times such as that is in a spirit of repentance to acknowledge your sin, to admit your sin, and to come before God based upon his grace 
and his mercy, not based upon who you are, what you're able to do, because that's kind of what got you into trouble in the first place, but come to God based upon his grace and his mercy. And so that's what verse 10 is encouraging them to do. Verse 11 is the other side of the coin. This is when we try to work our way out of it apart from God. Well, you need to come to God. Well, you know what? First, I got to, and can fill in the blank. I got to stop sinning. I got to get right. I got to do better. No, you come to God just as you are. Because look what happens in verse 11. It says, look, all you who kindle a fire. Well, in this particular context, what are these people? Why are these people kindling a fire? Because they're in darkness. But the problem is, in this particular case, that's an artificial light. The Lord is the light. It says, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So working backwards, that's not a good thing for them to kindle that fire. And again, the idea is this is an artificial means or a human means or a worldly or fleshly means of dealing with their sinful situation. How many times have you found yourself in a hard, hard spot because of sin in your life or disobedience? I mean, it's all sin, obviously, but disobedience in your life. And you realize, I got to do something. And you tried to work your way out of it. You tried to achieve in the flesh, which God was willing to do in the spirit. But instead of depending upon the spirit, you step forward in the flesh. And instead of being delivered from the darkness, you got burned, if you will, by the fire that you had lit. And so, again, we can all find ourselves, but we've got to, we've got to find an assurance in the word of God. And that's going to be a point or two next. But... Romans 8.28 says, and we know. So this is something that all believers should know. And when it says you know, it just doesn't mean that you have this head knowledge, but you know to such a degree that it is sunk down in your heart. And so you've heard this. Most of you probably have it memorized. But do you really know that all things work together for the good? Do you really believe that all things work together for the good? To the magnitude which you believe that and receive that will be the peace and the contentment that you have as you go through trials in your lives or you go through the dark days of your lives. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so when we embrace God's word, we have a contentment in God's word. So backing up those of verse 10 who are encouraged to trust in God, why? Well, we, putting the Bible together, can tell them, well, this is something you can know, you have an assurance of. All things are working together for the good. All these things, Babylon and this captivity, it makes no sense to you right now, but I guarantee you in heaven, well, I shouldn't say in heaven, I should say through heaven here on earth, it's working together for that which is good. Now, which is good, which is godly, or the intent of God. That means perfectly good, perfectly of the Lord, according to God's. It's working towards God's reasons and God's purposes. Not just good that the trial goes away, because a trial that just goes away, that's not good, because then you're going to have to go through it again. And matter of fact, you'll probably have to go through a more intense one the next time. But as you receive what God has for you in the midst of the trial, that's a good thing. But verse 11, when you don't believe it's working together for the good, when you believe it's some kind of random thing, or you think, 
I can work my way out of it before God finds out about it, or whatever it might be, you're going to find yourself burnt by your own sparks. That's the intent here. It says, look at verse 11. Look all you who kindle the fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks. The idea is that person is going to be burned by his own fire. The second exhortation to the captives, God has always done big things through small things. We enter into chapter 51, the first three verses. Listen to me. That means pay attention. And so <clears throat> the prophet is inspired by the Holy Spirit to grasp the intention of his hearers, grab them by the ears, if you will. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hold the pit from which you were dug. So he's saying, consider your roots. Consider the place where you've come from. If you're truly a born-again believer, if you're truly true Israel, consider where it is that you have come from. Now, who is true Israel? True Israel are the ones who live their lives, are walked by faith. That's a true descendant. We're gonna, he's going to use Abraham. That's a true descendant of Abraham. Remember in chapter 12, Abraham was told to get out of his country and to go to this land which God was going to give him, and he did, and he took the step, and he took the step by faith, and so righteousness was accounted to him. And so all of those who walk in by faith are spiritual children of Abraham. And so he's saying, look back to the original. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look, verse 2, to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. And so all of that darkness will become light. All of that emptiness at some point will become full. So you're in the middle of a hard thing and it doesn't seem like there's any way out. It seems like you've finally gotten in over your head, and what are you going to do? But the problem is we so easily evaluate our situations and circumstances based upon our abilities. Learn to evaluate the trials you're in, the situations and circumstances based upon the abilities of God. Because we know, Ephesians chapter 3, God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that's the idea here. God decides he's going to start a nation. Now, if I start a nation, I'll finally I'll try and find a group of people and try and convert them over to my ideas or whatever. But what did God do? He took two people. Abraham was as good as dead. You know what that means? That means Abraham was at this point in life where he couldn't have kids. And since he couldn't make it happen, the only thing he could do would have dependency upon the Lord. I mean, he tried in the flesh, remember, with Ishmael? He ended up impregnating a servant, but that wasn't God's plan. I thought he couldn't have kids. Well, God changed him, but also God wanted him to wait upon him and, and move into the mindset of his plan. So God's going to start this nation, and he simply started from two people. Two people whom, if you were going to start a nation from, you probably wouldn't start from them. But this is God, because he's wanting to know that he does great things, very simple things and really that should convict you it should even motivate you towards ministry because now you see well if he did that through him and so many other common ordinary people what's God able to do through you think about it 
what is God can save lives through you. God can alter the course of history through you. God can change the future through you. And if you don't have big vision, at least have enough vision for your family that you lead your family in the ways of righteousness or whatever your sphere of influence may be. Understand and expect God to do something really, really great because he's done it. He did it through Abraham, and he did it through Sarah. If you were wandering through that land at that time and you came upon Abraham and Sarah, you wouldn't give them a second thought. But God gave them exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ever ask or they could ever think. There was the prophet Elijah. He took his eyes off the Lord because there was this man stood before the prophets of Baal, and God did an amazing thing and achieved a great victory, and I would imagine he was pretty excited about that. But then he came to the realization of how vulnerable he was as he took his eyes off of the Lord. Somebody told him that Je Jezebel is after you, and Jezebel is going to kill you, and well, he stood before all of those 250 prophets of Baal, but now that he's taken his eyes off the Lord, now he's frightened. It says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, and you need to hear this verse with the background of wah, 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 wah. But it said, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. But none of that is true. He's just looking around at his own situations and circumstances, and as we all can, when we lose focus upon God and we look around us, we're spiritually destroyed. If you're looking at what's going on around the world, if you're looking at just what's going on in our country today, apart from God, what did the preacher look at in Ecclesiastes? These things under the sun or apart from God? There's nothing but despair there. Well, this man is in despair, but God has strengthened him. In 1 Kings 19, verse 18, four verses later, he says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God's saying, I have my ability, and I have my people. God's always going to have his ability, and he's always going to have his people. Those times when you feel alone and you feel in darkness, God's got his people and he's got his ability, and he loves you, and he wants to minister to you and meet you, but he also wants to teach you and instruct you so that you learn the lesson. And so as we seek God out, how do we seek God out? We seek God out in so many different ways, in prayer and, and in the word, but a key way that we can so easily forsake is in fellowship as well. And that's the idea that Elijah would be of the mindset that he's not alone, there's others. God does great things through small things. The third exhortation to the captives is the reality that light comes from the teaching of God's word. Verses 4 through 6, really in verse 4, but it says, Listen to me, my people. Now, this is God's word speaking. And give an ear to me, O my nations, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as lights of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. 
Now, it's very interesting. When Judah was taken captive by Babylon, they lost the opportunity to sacrifice. Now, to the Jew, that was of the mindset, I can't worship God. God's no longer going to dwell in the midst of us. I've got the sin issue. What am I going to be able to do with that? Because the sacrifice was that which covered sin. But even as they lost the sacrifice, I think they fell deeper or maybe had a greater respect for the word of God. You see, see God, God cut that off because they didn't have their hearts in the worship. They didn't have their hearts in the sacrifice. And God knew that these people, they need to stop that because I'm tired of burnt bulls and burnt cows and sheep and everything else. He understood these people need to come back to my word. And so it's very interesting. God causes his people to go into captivity, but it's in the midst of captivity for the first time the synagogues are established. Why are the synagogues established? For the express purpose of teaching the word of God. It was through these synagogues that the word Jesus Christ would enter in and share the word of God. The Apostle Paul, whenever he blew into town, what was the first place that he would go to? He would go to the place where the fishing was the easiest. He would go into the synagogues because they knew the word of God, and he would show them how Jesus Christ fulfilled the word of God. And so it was necessary for them to set aside the sacrifice and to establish the synagogue so that they would be, well, they would be refreshed by the word of God. Maybe a big part of your time in the darkness is so that you would come to the light of his word, come back to the understanding of his word. Somebody told me that I needed to read a book, I've mentioned this before, but a, a book written by Jim Baker. If you don't remember, Jim Baker was a man who was teaching falsely the word of God. He was drawing money unto himself. He developed some kind of Christian theme park and the whole thing. Well, the government found out what he was doing, and he was uh, accused of embezzling, and uh, there was many improprieties, and he went to jail. And somebody says, you've got to read this book that he wrote. This was after he was released from jail, and I'm thinking, I don't want to read that. And the name of the book was, I'm sorry. And it had a picture of Jim kind of going like that. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. But it was actually an excellent book. And he said in the book, he said he was falsely teaching the word of God. He said he had listened to people that had led him astray, and he was taking the word of God out of context and using it for his advantage. But he says, I know the reason that God put me in jail. Number one is because I was wrong. Number two is I was taking advantage of his people. And number three, he said, I needed to get into God's word. And he found out as he took that time, because what did he have in jail? The only thing he had was the word of God. And as he was reading it, he realized the error of his ways. Now, I don't know what he's doing today. Was he really sorry? Seemed to be, as far as I know. I don't know the man. But nonetheless, I, I see how God works. Just put some time out for the purpose of getting us into his word. I read this verse this morning, Hebrews 10, 25, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching is the end times when, when hardship and evil seems to multiply. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Church, the literal translation of church, is the gathering together of people. And, and the context of it is the gathering together of like-minded people. Well, that would fit this description of not forsaking the assembling ourselves together. Don't forsake church. Why? Because church should be where the word of God is taught. 
and the Word of God is going to meet you where you're at. I can guarantee you that because I see it all the time. I'll be in the back, or a couple days later, I'll be talking to somebody, and they'll say, you know when you were teaching, we'll say Isaiah, you know when you were teaching through Isaiah? Yeah. Well, you know when you said this, and I'll be thinking, I don't remember saying that. And they'll say, I mean, I don't tell them that, but I just kind of think that in my mind. Well, God met me here, and this and that, and I'm thinking, well, that's not what I was talking about. But really, it wasn't me who was talking to them. It was the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, and it was meeting them where they are at. And so if you would look at a theme of a message, you may think that theme doesn't apply to my life. It's not applicable to my life. But God will make his word applicable to your life. That's one of my prayers. Lord, keep me out of your message and speak to the people, meeting them where they're at. Lord, up at that pulpit, if necessary, meet me there and teach me and instruct me. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, we're told, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself, make a proactive decision to submit yourself to the presence of God. This is to put aside your pride and come before him, again, on his terms. The mighty hand, what would the mighty hand of God be in this case? It would be the word of God. Humble yourself under the word of God. And what does it say? He'll exalt you or he will restore you. He'll restore you back to a place of promise. The fourth exhortation to the captives <clears throat> excuse me, was for them to keep a proper perspective. Understand the things that are going on are the works of God. Verses 7 and 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. So these are people who should be understanding these things. You people whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men. Do not be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. So Israel in Babylonian captivity could wonder again, how can Babylon be greater than God? Or maybe it seems like Babylon is greater than God. There's all of these promises and now it seems like these promises are cast to the wind. Or maybe you in a difficult time as you're going through a trial will think, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, whatever it might be. But God's saying, that's not so. You've got to keep these things in proper perspective. God's in it for the long haul, the long haul of your life, but also what he wants to do through your life. All who come up against God's people will eventually be destroyed by the God of the people. It seems like Babylon is in a prominent position but we know what happened historically. They fell in one night. The problem is, we'll see this a little bit later on, they took enjoyment in that which God gave them to do as far as take his people into captivity. God was using him as his hand of punishment, but they took it too far. But when it comes to the persecution of God's people, we're told in Zechariah, now this is towards Israel, but I really believe this was given so that we would realize this is towards all of God's people. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after the glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Well, notice there's not a whole lot of Assyrians around today. Not a lot of Babylonians around today. Not a lot of Philistines around today, but Israel's still there. I saw it about a year and a half ago. It's there, 
and God's people are still there, and God's fulfilling his promises towards nation Israel. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The idea there is that you're provoking God. Now, I always thought the apple of God's eye would be his fondness and how he looks upon Israel. If somebody's the apple of my eye, but that's really improper. The apple of your eye is your pupil. What would be one of the most irritating things that somebody could do to you that would probably more than likely really incur your wrath is to come up and poke you in the pupil of your eye. That would hurt. That would be irritating. And so the idea here is those who come up against Israel, although they're of the mindset we're doing this to Israel, in essence what they're doing is they're poking God in the eye and they're going to incur the wrath of God. Next we have a three-part reveille. This is a cry for those who are addressed here to wake up. And first, it's a prayer for God to wake up. Now, again, you need to see it from the perspective. They're asking God that he would rise up and move in their lives. So verses 9 through 11, it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee, flee away. The basis of this prayer, or this request, if you will, is the knowledge of what God has done, his promises and his works. And God's promises and his works in the past are his pledge for the future. God has established Israel in the past, and they understand that there's a pledge for the future. We know in the first coming of Christ and in the second coming of Christ. And so their idea isn't like, God, wake up. Their desire is for God to rise up, to be seen, and to move in their lives and in their enemies' lives. Verses 12 through 16 I, even I, am he who comforts you. And so God, this is God's response. Who are you that you should be afraid of man who will die, and the son of man who will be made like grass? And the idea here is, yeah, you're concerned about all this, and you should be. It's real happening in your life. But understand, these people are just merely men. And God's reminding them, I'm God. And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile, the captive exile hastens that he may be loose, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth, I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. And so what God is saying here is, look at the work that I've done in the past and find a comfort from that and understand I have future plans for you. God has future plans for us. As I've said so many times before, we're immortal as long as we are in the will of God and God has plans for us. Wherever it is that God has called us to, God is able to keep us there as well. 
Secondly, we see a wake-up call as to a drunken woman, verses 17 through 23, and the idea is this woman is drunken and laying on the ground. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hands of the Lord, the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. That means the dregs are the sediment that goes to the bottom. They drank that whole cup and drained it out. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come upon you. Who will, who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore, because of these things, Please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. And so this, again, is past prophecy with future promise. Verse 23, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you, and you have laid your body on the ground, or like the ground, the ideas of being walked over, and the street for those who walk over. And so they drunk from this cup. I think the best picture, at least idea to get a picture, is Christ in the garden. And he said to the Father, he prayed to the Father, please allow this cup to pass, but not my will, but yours be done. Now what was Jesus, what was that cup that Jesus was speaking of in the garden? He's speaking of drinking from the cup of judgment. Now we in turn, because Christ drank from the cup of judgment, we can now drink from the cup of salvation. Now the cup of judgment, we couldn't drink. Well, we could drink from that, but we would die. We would die for all eternity. But Christ is the only one, if you will, who could drink from that cup. Now Israel was drinking from that cup, and they became drunk in their sin, if you will, to such a degree that they're drunk on the ground and they're being walked over. Now, part of the problem of that is if you look over at verse 18, because you definitely can draw parallels to the church. I mean, at times it seems like the church has become drunk and is being walked over as well. But in verse 18, it says, There's no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand amongst all the sons she has brought up. And Ezekiel were told that God was looking for a man to stand in the gap, but there was none. And the idea of her sons would be the children of Israel. And which of the children of Israel are going to rise up in obedience to the Lord and cause something to change? But nobody did. They were completely apostate. They were completely apart from God. And so the Lord, the Lord came at a time when man came to that point of futility in the word of God. The law, the law displayed that he was a sin, that we were all sinners. And there's nothing that we can do about that. Judgment was imminent, but Christ came and picked up that that, that cup of judgment and drank from it so that we, well, the psalmist talked about it in Psalm 116, verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And you can look at those parallels and take them to the communion table as we drink that wine, the blood of Christ, as, it, as we consume it, it becomes part of who we are and has caused us to be children of God, speaks of our salvation. And then thirdly, we have a wake-up call to a captive woman, verses 52, 1 through 6. 
Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcision and the unclean shall no longer come to you. He's basically saying, put on my righteousness. Verse 2, shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourselves from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people have been taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is. Really, the argument there is, is that they have taken for nothing. They haven't paid the price for these people. They've taken them away. They, they stole them from God. Because really, they, you know, God used them, but they were the mindset. They weren't looking to the Lord to be used. They were the mindset of their own benefit. And so they've taken them away. They, they kidnapped them, if you will, from the Lord. And God is saying, because they have done that, I'm going to take them back. So he's given us these rich pictures to see the idea of redemption. Or this is the idea of taking captivity captive. To take captivity captive, that means that which was one free, once free has been taken into captivity, and then you go back and you redeem them or you set them free. That's what it means to take captivity captive, is to bring them back to yourself. And then we have two dispatches here. First, good news for Jerusalem, verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, speaking of the future proclamation that Jerusalem will have when Messiah comes the first time and the second time. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, with their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, singing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Again, I've mentioned it before when we were in Israel. When you go into Jerusalem for the first time, it's very emotional. It's very breathtaking. It's just an amazing event. You know what you're going into, but until you go into it and see it, 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 it just, again, it, it just takes your, your, your complete breath away. It's an amazing thing to be able to do that and see this place, this place that God has set aside in his heart. And the whole time you're in Jerusalem, I mean, a lot of it is because we know the Word of God, and we've read the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, but there's just that idea that you know you're in this place of God. You understand as you look at the Mount of Olives, Christ is going to come down in the second coming and he's going to set foot on top of that mountain. And again, it's just an amazing thing. And then we have good news for the captives, verse 11 through 12. Depart, depart. Go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her and be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He's going to protect you as you go to the place that he has designed for you. Now, if you go back to Abraham's day, what did he say? I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. I remember Don Stewart, it was in the early 90s, said, 
I'll give you absolute proof of the existence of God. And he went through all of the nations that had cursed Israel and had been cursed in turn. And he went through the nations that blessed Israel and have been blessed in turn. And again, you can go through the list. And you see everybody who has cursed Israel has in turn been cursed. Everybody who's blessed Israel has in turn been blessed. And in that, you need to see the hand of God. Why? Because he's their rear guard. He watches out for them. He protects them. He brings them to the place of their, of his desire. And then I'll close with thir- verses 13 through 15. Some say verses 13 through 15 could be included in chapter 53. It's definitely a good introduction to the chapter. But it says, behold, my servant, again, that would be Messiah, my servant shall deal prudently, or my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. His appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But what has not been told them, they shall see. And what they have not heard, they shall consider. And so the idea is, one day, in a little city in California called Ontario, in July 10th, 7.25 p.m., you'll be able to look back on these things and see that they're so. And so, look back on the Word of God. That's why we study the Old Testament. Look back. And we see the fulfillment of all these things. And we see the faithfulness of God. See, we didn't have to experience Babylonian captivity and wonder. We can look back based upon God's Word and see the hand of God and see what God has done. And then we can also know that the same God who moved that way back then for the fulfillment of His promises is the same God that is working today for the fulfillment of his promises, his will, and his plan. That's how we can boldly say all things work together for the good. And so the hardship that occurs in our lives, we know that that's not good, but it's working together for God's good. The things that happen this coming week and the years to come, at least until the rapture of the church, God's working his plan out because he's been faithful for the past 6,000 years. I know he's going to be faithful until not only the end of the church age, but through the tribulation, in the millennial age, the great white throne judgment, and then for all eternity. This is the great hope that resides within us. Father, we thank you that you have given us that great hope, and it's because of that hope, Lord, that we can boldly proclaim your word. Father, as your word has been real in our lives, we know that your word's going to be real in the lives of others. Father, as we repent and came into your wonderful kingdom, others will be able to repent and come to your kingdom as well. And so, Father, I pray if we have an excitement about your word, that we would be excited out there in the world. That, Father, they would just see your goodness and your graciousness. And, Lord, men and women would turn to a right relationship with you. And so, Father, we just lift all to you. Once again, thanking you. I lift up, Father, as we move into Isaiah chapter 53 next week. And just the blessing that this is of the crucifixion of Christ and the magnitude of all that occurred upon that cross. May we rejoice in your plan and the knowledge of it. You have not left us in the dark, but Lord, you have brought us into your wonderful light. And because of that, we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?